Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Eileen Heisman, President and CEO of National Philanthropic Trust. And Eileen is recognized as an expert on charitable giving. That might be something we're wanting to still get done as the year is quickly winding down. So Eileen is here to share some points, but also to share some stories of her own life, which I feel can encourage and motivate us towards dreams and goals that we've not dared to see the light of day. So let's meet Eileen and learn. Eileen Heisman, good morning. Thank you so greatly for spending time with us this morning. Thank you for having me. It's terrific to be around uh, people interested in giving on a, on a holiday season. And it is a, a high point, I think. I feel that the statistics are there that our hearts become a little more open and generous when it comes to this time of year. Uh, and is that your finding? It is. I think people are feeling more giving. And I also think that the deadline of the year end for tax deductions kind of puts an overlay on that that makes it a greater sense of um, timing and that you have to get it done by a certain time. So let's just take a moment about that, because the tax laws have changed. Has there been a great difference in what we experienced in years past versus what we will this year? You know what? We've experienced a little bit of a slowdown in some of our gifts, and I think there's two things that are contributing to it. Um, One is that the market has been very volatile, the stock market, and so many donors who make charitable gifts use appreciated publicly traded securities. And as a result, when the market has a lot of volatility, sometimes people are nervous about giving or they want to wait until the market goes up a little bit so they get a greater value for their gift. So we're seeing a little bit of a hesitation around that. And there's also new tax laws that um, change the way people can take their deductions. So we never have seen this before because this is the first year it's been in place. And so I think it might be giving people pause, not that they're less charitable, but they don't know how it's going to affect their taxes. So I think they're trying to evaluate it. And I think so there's been a delay and we're seeing gifts pick up now. But earlier in December, I think with the volatility of the market and trying to understand the tax deduction better, people were thinking it through differently this year than they were the last two years. Well, we still have over a week left that we can make these decisions. And so that's really key in our having this conversation this morning, I think, Eileen, is to encourage people to move forward with those heartfelt feelings uh, about giving and helping those who are in need. And there's certainly many different ways that we can do that. There are, and there, you know, the giving of charitable gifts, whether you give cash or appreciated securities, or whether you donate goods or give your time, all those things make a big difference to charities, and they count a lot on these year-end gifts. So if you have been thinking about giving and been holding back, I really encourage you not to wait to the last minute, but to start really planning it now. And if you have questions, you can call your favorite charitable organization and ask for the development office, and there's people there that work in those offices that can help you. And with Google and all the search engines we have these days, you can go online and within a few minutes find out an enormous amount about how how to give. Um, And there's a couple of portals. My favorite one is Network for Good, um, which is you can go on and almost every charity in the country um, is accessible through Network for Good. And you can go on there and actually bunch all of your charitable giving into one transaction online. And not every charity 
everybody likes to be listed, but most of them are. And uh, there's a little bit of a charge for doing it, but instead of going to 10 or 12 websites, you can just go to one. And sometimes that then takes so much of the guesswork out of this whole process that we can see it all in one page and then maybe do a, a little investigation on ones that maybe pop out to us. Absolutely. If you really, I always say to people, spend as much time looking at the charities as that you like as you do looking for a restaurant that you're trying to pick out, which sometimes can be 10 or 12 or 15 minutes if you're reading reviews, because in 10 or 12 or 15 minutes, you can find out a lot about what's going on in a charity, who's on the board, um, who's involved in the leadership of the charity, you know, how they're spending their money, the kind of programs that they're running. And it'll give you some comfort if you're reading things that you like and make you feel confident that they're doing a good job, that you're investing that kind of like you would invest in something else, right? So it's like a commercial investment. So I really encourage people to look at their grant making as an investment and to spend time doing it. The other thing I always suggest is to make fewer, larger grants. So if you know you want to give away $200 instead of, you know, giving, you know, 10 grants or 10 gifts of $20, you know, think about dividing it into four and give four gifts of $50 um, because fewer, larger gifts make it easier for the charity to, um, first of all, to process. But the second thing is, is that if you can stay with that charity for a little while, those four charities, you know, they can learn how to rely on that money rather than need to go out and spend time and effort in raising new money. So make fewer larger gifts and stay loyal to the few charities that you're picking. And we need to really listen to this well because you have spent your career working in philanthropy and with grant making and now are the president and CEO of National Philanthropic Trust. So you really have a very long history that, that gives us good insights for this. I have been. So when I started working in philanthropy, which was in 1987, uh, the idea of helping people with their grant making and giving away money and making it easier for them to give was something that was completely consistent with how I live my life, how I work in my job, how I exercise, how I deal with my friends and my family. And so it's nice to be able to have a consistency from your personal and professional life the way I've been able to have one. So that is interesting that um, it carried over. What were are some of the key things then that you could share with us, Eileen, that uh, I think we can learn from and, and maybe incorporate or enhance in our own lives? I think when you have inconsistency in your life, when you have a set of beliefs or values that are, you think are important and they feel compromised, whether it's in personal relationships or in work, or in something in your life that doesn't feel consistent, I think, you know, it creates a conflict. And whether you're conscious of it or not, it's hard to know. But for me, it was really important that those be aligned. And so I decided that I wanted to work in organizations that were more mission-driven. And, and it just made my life feel more in sync with me and what I wanted to do. And I, I probably make less money, I'm sure I do, than, than people that work in the for-profit sector. But I just have always felt that I, I kind of breathe the same air at home and at work, and it's just given me a great sense of peace and calm about, about how that integrates in my life. I really appreciate peace and calm. It is something I think most of us really strive for, but we're not sure how to get there. And here you are living it every day of your life. 
I want to give you the. Uh, I don't want to give you the impression that everything's peaceful and calm all the time. It's certainly not. I have the same, you know, turmoil that anybody has that lives in this world. But um, with regard to the values that I have at work and at home, they really are very much in sync. And and I never look back and wish it was different. That part of my life, I I feel really fortunate and lucky every day. And it's not lost on me that I get a chance to have these things got woven in so easily and well. And I just, um, I know from talking to lots of people who want to change their jobs or change their careers, that I'm not the only person that feels this way because I do a lot of informational interviews with people. And a lot of people want that, those two parts of their life to be in sync more. And so it's, I think it's the human spirit, not, not everybody, but, but the kinds of people that like working in nonprofits, I think it's really important for all of us. So, it's great to be able to say it. And I, if you don't feel this way, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with you. I think it's just a way how certain people are constructed and think about the world. And the world certainly is in great need of persons thinking along these lines. And so you have been living your life this way. You have spent several decades actually in philanthropy. Isn't that right? I have. I have. And all different kinds. I mean, I, I was a charitable fundraiser at a couple of hospitals, and I worked at a community foundation for a while, and now I work at National Philanthropic Trust and have. I've been uh, here for the whole 22 years. We've been in existence and CEO for 20 of them. And so, yeah, I have a long career, and but I'm a constant student of it. There's always a lot to learn, you know, with the web and with um, the world becoming so small and the global access so easy these days. It's a very different kind of work than when I started. Um, and part of it is just being adaptive to the change and to read and learn all the time. But and one of my greatest joys, actually, beyond that is, or including that, is I teach a philanthropy course at the University of Pennsylvania, a graduate course, a 14-week graduate course, and I've been doing it for 13 years. And so I not only get to live it at work, but I get to teach young people about it and ways to embrace it as a career path or just even as professional volunteers, which some people want to be, mostly as a career path. So I get a chance to learn what young people are thinking about and how they're embracing it. So that's enormously gratifying as well. So it, that learning cycle keeps on going, that you share, you learn, and it just keeps on growing and expanding. It does. And I don't know if people realize this who don't teach, but you learn when you teach. I mean, so you have to be keeping your material current. And then when people ask you a question, and I encourage my students to ask a lot of questions, you know, you have to think about what they're asking and why and the context in which they're asking it. And so you, you can't just leap to an answer. So you're always processing new information and integrating new ideas. So that's really interesting. And that has kept me on my toes. At University of Pennsylvania, the graduate students are really talented. And a lot of them want to go on to nonprofit careers or changing their careers from doing something very different to the nonprofit sector. And it's just been a remarkable experience. Uh, I've lost students in there, business students, you know, people who are studying nursing, um, public health, government. It's interesting. I have a wide variety of people who take the class, but it's in the nonprofit leadership program there. And I just really find it uh, stimulating a whole different part of my brain and my emotional self when I'm in front of a classroom. So I encourage anybody who's master of of a topic to find a way to teach young people because it really brings you a lot back, more than you would imagine. 
that sounds really exciting and a great suggestion for us moving forward. You know, perhaps uh, that could become the nugget of a New Year's resolution. Sure. You know, I cold called the uh, university, and uh, Dean at the time didn't call me back. And I called three or four times before I got a call back and told him in a lunch that we then arranged that I wanted to teach this course, and this was my idea. And he thought about it for a couple minutes and said, yes. Yeah. So it took me about a year and a half to get in the classroom because I had to map out the whole course. But um, I decided that that was something I wanted to do in my life and just went after it until I could find my way. So if he wasn't going to talk to me, I was going to try to call another university. But I think when you really want something, you have to put it in your mind to pursue it and not to be uh, deterred by obstacles. (laughs) That tenacity. It certainly has served you well and a really great piece of direction for us in our own lives. I think, you know, persistence and um, having a plan B and a plan C when you see an obstacle is really an important skill in life. I, I encourage my own children, the students, my, my coworkers at NPT, you know, if we see an obstacle and we really think we should go down a path, let's look at some alternate routes to get there. And I think you always need them in your back pocket, your front pocket, your side pocket, because, you know, there are always obstacles in life, right? And, and part of it's just maneuvering around them if you have a goal that you really want to pursue. Fabulous. It's just very exciting to hear you articulating all these ideas, Eileen. I'm just very excited about it. So I'm going to rewind a bit. I understand that working with your father, uh, working in your dad's office, was significant in your following this path. So when my father um, decided he was going to open an optometry practice, he was an eye doctor, he decided he was going to put his office attached to the house. So I grew up uh, with an office right next part of our house, really. And at a very young age, I would answer the phone and take messages. And then when I got a little bit older, um, I would make appointments for him. And then I learned how to put screws in the when, I, when the temple would fall off glasses. I could I could actually fix them without him being home. So I got to work at a very young age, and he taught me how to answer the phone professionally and what I should say. And I was really good. Remember those little pink message slips? Yes. And I was really good at filling them out and making sure all the information was there. And so I got a chance to be in the work world earlier than a lot of people. And um, it was really important to him that I speak professionally. Every once in a while, somebody would say, how old are you? Or I'd say, this is Dr. Heisman's daughter, right? Because I just wanted them to know that even though I was a young person, I was (laughs) responsible. And uh, it really got me ready for the work world. And it was about service. And uh, the work we do here at NPT is about service. So I really uh, feel like that's a woven-in theme of my life, and it came easily to me when I was 8 and 9 and 10, and it still comes easily to me, and I'm a lot older than that. But I think about that, and my dad training me, and it was really clear with the office would phone would ring in our house, and so I would turn the TV off or the radio, so he said he didn't want any outside noise, and I'd answer at Dr. Heisman's office. So I got trained really early to listen to what people's issues were and respond to them and try to have a favorite response, and it really set me up to really look at other people's points of view and things they needed and wanted. So it was great prep for the kind of work that I do. That is so great. So do you have children? I do. I have two children. Did you lead them along, guide them along in somewhat of a similar fashion? 
I tried to, I, you know, I didn't have an office that was attached to the house, but I always went to their days at school in which people could come and talk about their jobs. And my office is not the kind of office where you can sit and um, kind of take it in easily of what's going on. But um, one of my children interned here part-time when she was in high school and, and the early part of college. And so I think both of them are finding their way in the world. And I tried to model them. I didn't have the same experience to offer as having my father have an office in the house, but I certainly did try to model. And, you know, being a working mother and being a single mother for a long part of that enabled me to show them how to juggle a lot of tasks at the same time. And there was a time in which I used probably 80% of my vacation time to go to my daughter's sporting events. She's a really amazing athlete. And so this idea of um, having work-life balance, I didn't go on long vacations by myself. You know, I would take the kids at the beach for one week, but the rest of my vacation time was really re- focused on school and being um, visiting teachers during parent-teacher meetings and, you know, pouring juice when I wanted, needed to. But it was a hard road to navigate. And I look back as NPT was growing and I was navigating that, that I was, um, I can't believe, I, I think I used to wake up really early in the morning to make sure I could get them both off to school at the same time. So there was nobody at home helping me. I did it alone. And it was really, I did it with a focus and determination. And I remember being tired in the evening early and falling asleep early. I know there's a lot of people listening who are in that same boat and you can get through it, but you just have to have a lot of focus and planning because if you don't, you can stumble a few times. As you said earlier, having a plan B and a plan C, just really knowing that there could be curveballs. That's right. That's right. And a lot, you know, this was before, you know, a lot of cell phones and the internet was so, wasn't so easy to access. So the kind of planning you had to do was really, you know, very, you know, what, how long does it take to drive here? And what do I, the kids need in their book bag? And did they finish their homework? And what's happening after school, right? So you were always, I always used to say when I got into work, always, like I lived a whole life, a whole day before I got in. It felt like I'd lived a whole day at home in the morning before I came into work. You know, that is such an important thing to say for women listening to be honored in that way. It's like, yes, that is a full-time job, and you've already done it in those first uh, couple of hours, potentially, in the morning. So to really acknowledge that and, you know, give it a good nod. You know, I, I used to say every morning when I walked in, I still say it sometimes. I made it. <laughs> I got here. And, you know, here I am, you know, I'm a CEO and I make it every day really to get here. But just going through those mornings and coming in and everything kind of worked most days. I mean, not everything worked every day, but, you know, there it would be and I'd make it on time and with things done that needed to be done. But I just remember needing and wanting to acknowledge that I made it. And sometimes I would just say it to myself, you know, I made it, I made it. I did it again today. I look back, I like, oh my gosh, did I really do that? And I did, I did, I did it without, I'm not a complainer by nature at all. So glass is half full. I wanted to be a mother. I wasn't able to have kids, so I adopted two kids and I kind of maneuvered through that. And then there I was with these children that I was dearly, dearly wanted and life was complicated and I wanted to work too. So 
so it was just one of those things where I made it work. But when I look back of where I am now, and one's 32 and one's 26, I'm just incredulous, actually. And when I see my colleagues who have young children, and I have a couple of people here that have two or three young kids, and they come to work on time, I'm very sympathetic to what it took to get here. This, again, is such a wealth of encouragement and information that you're sharing with us, Eileen, because I think many women, not that men don't find themselves in somewhat similar situations, but often it's the moms uh, juggling all of this and wanting to have a successful career. And you're demonstrating and sharing with us how you've been able to accomplish this. I have, I mean, I have, and I sometimes look back and I think, what would I have done differently? Or what could I have changed? Or, you know, and I, I was a primary breadwinner, so I wanted, I just want to work. I needed to work. I wanted to like my job. I wanted to raise my kids responsibly. I wanted to be a good citizen of the community. And I wanted to make a contribution in whatever way I could. And it was, you know, it was difficult, but it wasn't terrible. I, I like working hard, actually, and I liked the idea that I could have a little bit of a balance. One of the things that was really a gift to me is I actually work really close to my house, so I never for years have not had a long commute, and that's been a real blessing because if I needed to um, do something to benefit the kids during a lunch hour or something, I could without a lot of difficulty because um, a lot of the time their schools weren't that far away. So that made it easier to navigate. But I really support working mothers being creative and using re- local resources. Other working mothers whose families maybe live far away. You know, I, I used to use high school kids to meet my ch- kids after school sometimes, or I would negotiate with the mothers who weren't working to take, you know, to pick them up after a sports practice. I mean, I was always creating senses of community around what I was doing because I needed that to help navigate the world. And it sometimes it was hard and other times it was really easy actually, but I had to really stay at it. Like I could not kind of let it go. My son had a lot of um, issues with emotional kind of not being very calm. He was very active, overly active and the after school programs found him not always compatible with the kind of things they wanted to do. So I would often find neighborhood moms that wanted to make a little extra money so he could stay at their house for a couple hours as opposed to being in an after-school program because it wasn't a good match for who he was as a young man. And so those were always, you know, I'd be putting signs up in supermarkets and interviewing people. And sometimes I go through an old folder and I find one of those and I think, oh, my gosh. But I did. I found a few mothers over the years who were more than happy to, to bring him home and, and have him be in the house without the structure of an after-school program. And he always did much better in a situation like that. So you have to know your kids and what your constraints are and, you know, what their resources are. And if I felt uncomfortable with the person I was interviewing, I thought, not the person, right? But then I ended up making some great friends and finding these people would help me maneuver through being a working mother. <laughs> And there comes into play again, having a plan B, a plan C, maybe even a plan D. (laughs) Yeah, always, always. And I I have a brother who is a plays chess. He's written 13 chess books. His name's Dan Heisman. And one of the things about playing chess is you're always doing what-if scenario planning. So I feel like part of my brain, and maybe it's a family gift I have, is, you know, what if that doesn't work? What should I do next? And so I always had this ability to plan through what if this, what if that, what if that. So when I was making these alternate plans, I would, you know, be writing them down or 
making notes on them because I would just realize that if I wanted to work and be a mother and do the things I wanted to do, that I really needed to be creative and resourceful. And so I was, but it, sometimes the best laid plans fall apart, right? So those are the moments where, you know, you realize, oh, you know, I really need to, to get up from work and leave, right? But it didn't happen that much. So I really salute every working parent and every working mother. I mean, I used to go food shopping sometimes in the morning before work. And if it was cold, I would, all the refrigerated stuff would just be out in the car cold. I couldn't do it in the summer, but just as a way so I didn't have to leave the kids home alone at night. I mean, I just did not, things like that. And I look back, and I don't know if you know this, but supermarkets in the morning are empty. You can do a whole food shop and check out, and you can be through it in a very short period of time if you know what you want to buy. So really using your time so efficiently. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not everybody thinks like that, but I just would think through my last, you know, what, what are my days like? I, there's hardly any food in the house. I better go this morning. Okay, it's cold enough so it'll be like being in a refrigerator if I leave it in the car. I know, I laugh. I don't do that anymore, but I did at the time. Well, because it was necessary now, because they're way out of the nest, uh, living their own successful lives, right? Yes, absolutely. And I look at them and I kind of chuckle to myself because I, at the time, it was the only mom that they knew and they just thought, you know, who's this? My daughter told me at one point, and I I laugh about it now, she said, Mom, I think we do too many things in a day. Can we do less things? (laughs) She said that to me, and I just realized that even though I was going at this pace, that it wasn't for everybody. And I said, of course, we can do less things. And I just realized that I had to notch it down, and we did. It was really interesting that she, she's like an old soul, I guess, you know, that she said that. And it was so clear. She was probably seven or eight. She was pretty young. And I said, okay. And um, I just realized that for her, she didn't want to go to every lesson and every, you know, music and gymnastics and sports. She just wanted a couple things she really wanted to do and she wanted and needed downtime. So I learned from her at that moment. There again, you're learning from youth. That again, I think, is a, a great observation for us to have is pay attention to the young people in our life, to our own kids, uh, to the kids we're teaching, uh, kids around us. Absolutely. And part of it is just being able to pause and listen. You know, I think sometimes we're in a rush and or we're so busy about what we want to say next that we don't even listen to what's being said to us. And I tried really hard as a parent to listen to what the kids were saying to me. You know, and you don't always like what your kids are saying to you, or maybe it's not workable. But in that case, when she said it, I guess it really spoke to me because I probably felt overscheduled at times or thought she wanted to do all these lessons, and she didn't. She wanted to do a couple things that she really liked, and then she wanted to be able to be home and hang out and play. And we had a really great neighborhood, and we had lots of kids that were in walking distance of the house who lived in the neighborhood, and she just wanted to be able to have downtime. And she didn't have the language that, you know, an older kid might have, but she made it really clear, and I was really stopped in my tracks when she said it to me, so much so that I, you know, here she's 32, and I remember it like it was yesterday. So, and it was probably one of my flaws was having her overscheduled, right? So she was basically telling me, I don't want to do that. And I said, okay. And I stopped that minute. I just went, okay. And I started inventorying what we could, things she wasn't enjoying. And we just checked them off and didn't do them anymore. And then she never said that to me again. 
because you okay. responded. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. did. I did. It was actually a relief for me because then I had less to do and schedule and figure out how to get her places. So it was actually, it was kind of a win-win. And I didn't know why I thought it was the best thing to do at the time, but it was probably, you know, every era of motherhood I have books and articles about how you should parent. And I guess the era in which she was born, you know, that was like enroll your kids in many activities as you can and keep them busy to keep them out of trouble. I mean, I don't know, but I was just doing what I thought was a good idea and and, uh, turned out not to be. And so I thank her for that, actually. (laughs) I reminded her of that the other day. She laughed. I mean, she just laughed because she likes being busy, but she also likes to have time in between to get ready and do things. So, you know, her her style as a person hasn't changed that much, but she's in control of her own world right now, so I don't have to worry about it. So what it sounds like to me, though, Eileen, is she has gotten from you what you initially said to us about having work-life balance, that uh, you embrace that, but you've certainly shared that with your children. I do. And I really think that hard work builds character and that being industrious is really important. So both of the kids are really hardworking at this point. And I think it's really a key to kind of being a human being. I know there's a lot of women that choose not to work out of the house for all different reasons, but they're busy with a lot of other things. But for me, I really needed and wanted to work at a job that was really important to me for financial independence and my own sense of contribution. So I think one of the great things by the time I was a a young woman is the idea that women had choices of different things they wanted to do. And I was really glad I had a chance to do that without feeling like an outlier. Because I think when my mother was a young mother or a young woman, you know, working was not embraced. And she was a nurse and really wanted to work and was really happy when she was working. But it was that, the, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, you know, the perfect mother was somebody who was like the leave it to beaver mom, right? And so I don't think she felt as uh, in sync with the world as I was able to, because by the time I was a working mother and a working wife, I didn't have that pressure where it was somehow not okay. It was fine. We certainly have been fortunate, that is for certain. And another way that we've been fortunate is certainly spending this time together, Eileen Heisman. Uh, You are such a wealth of information. Your life, your story, uh, the information you've imparted with us this morning, I think is such great food for thought and encouragement. So I thank you so greatly for being who you are and for taking time with us this morning. You know what, it's great to be here, and I always think that when you see people in these jobs, you somehow think that they have some perfectly manufactured in-sync life, and it's not true, (laughs) and that, you know, everybody has figured out a way to maneuver through their families and work-life balance, and you get it right sometimes. You don't always get it right, and you have to work on it. You have to always be a student and a teacher and somebody that can integrate new information and in some ways doesn't change, though your face changes and your hair looks different. You know, the way your brain maneuvers through those things is just a challenge. And I just want to encourage anybody who's listening who feels like they can't do it, you know, to be nice to yourself, be kind to yourself. Because I think, you know, a lot of times we're really hard. And, you know, I I get a manicure and a pedicure every two weeks, not because I really need one. It's just a way that I get a chance to relax. Beautiful. What a great note to wrap it all up with. Again, so many thanks for your time and all your stories this morning, Eileen. 
Great, Kate. Thanks a lot. And I hope you have a great holiday season. And of course, you as well. And with that, we are at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Eileen Heisman and Sunday Morning Magazine with Doug Siegel. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 1069 webpage. Click on the on-air tab, then Sunday mornings, and look for the show and guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of embracing the moments we have together and sharing kindness with all. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Seattle's Christmas Station, Warm 106.9. Have a joyous week.